You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Band Flip Podcast. What's good, everybody? Welcome back to another installment of the Van Flip. This week, we are joined by Matt from Memphis May Fire, as well as Alex via the call-in again. So how are you doing, Matt? I'm doing good, man. How you doing? Great, great, great. You're currently on tour. Um, yeah. Who are you on tour with again? Remind me real quick. Uh, we're out with a band called Pop Evil. Okay. And um, mixed in with it, we're doing a handful of headliner dates as well. Dope. Yeah. And- How's the tour been treating you so far? It's good, man. We're really early on, so it's tough to say, um, you know, exactly what the vibe of the tour is, um, at this point, but we've had a couple of great shows and, and the guys in Pop Evil and Gal, um, are great. They're great people. So it's been awesome. I'm just going to probably ask you not to touch Sorry. Me, yeah, just because <laughs> I'm sure people are going to be like, Oh, I can hear like the, the Oh man. Thing. Yeah. That's probably, that's no probably deal. a habit of mine that yeah, I've never no noticed deal. before. What do I do with my hands? Yeah. Right? yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I'll put them both on the headphones here. It's a problem. <laughs> it gets to be a problem sometimes. Just to realize you're doing it too. So you guys are, um, summer's coming up too. And, um, you're not your, it's not your first time on the festival circuit, correct? No, uh, uh-uh, no, uh, we, we've, we've done it, um, a couple of times and we actually had a couple more that we were going to be doing this summer that we had to cancel because we confirmed the disrupt, uh, the rockstar disrupt tour. Cool. And so there was a bunch of competing markets. And so we had to jump off a couple of the other festivals that we were doing, but no, it'll be a good summer, man. We've got a lot of cool stuff planned. Um, do you find that like you guys get radius clauses too, I'm assuming with those festivals. So like if you play at a certain festival, you can't play it with them. Absolutely. Radius? Yeah. The radius clause for festivals is, is pretty harsh. It's, it's, I mean, a, a lot more than just like what a club tour would be. Yeah. Um, and rightfully so, obviously. Um, so yeah, yeah, we, we have to stay out of those markets for a while. Do you, do you find that to become like annoying or anything like that? Cause I think as a fan, I should say, cause in other genres of music, like we talked prior to the podcast, uh, they like electronic festivals per se are, 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 king of radius clauses like yeah. 600 800 miles you yeah know? yeah some yeah insane thing so as a fan i think it does kind of uh it kind of bums me out a little bit when you can't see a band for at least six months because you know like oh well so-and-so is definitely going to be at such and such festival so totally yeah i mean it, it really comes down to um the, the biggest bummer is the people that can't come out to that festival you yeah. know what i mean because that's your one time to play anywhere within that vicinity um but i get it though you know like if it was me that was putting the festival on i i would want the same thing you know because you don't want an artist to you know uh saturate a market before they come those festivals are big risks for the people that put mm-hmm. them on you know so i get it you know it's pros and cons it's a you know it's a catch-22 as they like to call it huh? it is yeah um do you find what's more um where do you find more success? Would it be in the, in the festival realm or do you find like just either playing supporting tours or headlining tours in clubs and whatnot 
benefit you better? I think it's two different types of success. I think that in the festival realm, we get an opportunity to play for a much larger crowd and hopefully win over people or play for people that have never even heard of us before. Right. Um, and when we go out on club tours, that's when people really see us in our environment. You know, um, I, I think that festivals are in- important. But I think that rock and roll is meant to be seen in the dark. Yeah. You know? I agree. And so it's, uh, so there's, there's good in both. But, um, I would say that if, if we gain a fan at a festival, I hope that they see us in a club within the next few months. Right. I think that's with anything too. If anybody gains a fan, they would like to come see them in a more intimate scenario. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the drawbacks I think of being in the festival, uh, circuit and being a band on the festival circuit probably is that you don't get a long, a long set time. Sometimes it's 20 minutes. Sometimes yeah. it's only an hour, depending on your stardom level. I would sure. Guess. Yeah. That's yeah. But, um, yeah, as a fan, again, that's kind of like a drawback too. You go see a band that you kind of are into and they play at noon, you know, and totally. And they pay 20 minutes. Yeah. I think it's all just about like, well, I only get to see this band for 30 minutes, but I get to see four of my favorite bands right. today and it kind of makes up for it. Um, you know, I think different bands feel differently about short sets. I'm actually, I love short sets. Um, <laughs> being that I both sing and scream for the band, um, the 20, the 30 minute, the 35, you know, like the warp tour length sets or whatever were awesome for me. Uh, I just, my voice was never affected like it is on a headlining tour where mm-hmm. we're playing an hour, hour and 15. Uh, so I really prefer it, but the other guys are like, "Man, we're not playing for long enough." And I'm like, Ching, "Yeah, know? my <laughs> instrument, my instrument has wear and tear, though." Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, exactly. Too, but it's you know, I can't, I can't take my my throat to Guitar Center, right? You know, unfortunately. unfortunately, it's a totally different kind of place. Thank goodness they <laughs> screwed up. Sorry, Guitar Center. They're not sponsoring us yet, so it's yeah. okay. <laughs> hint, hint. No, they won't now. Thanks, Alex. You ruined it. But anyway. <laughs> Anyway, um, continuing on, we were talking about the festival situation. Yeah. I kind of lost the train of thought. Alex? Yeah, yeah I'm good. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I'm, go ahead. Well, go ahead. that's all right. Um, no, I, so you live in Nashville yes, sir. now, right? And you're from uh, Washington. Yeah, originally from Spokane. As Washington in, State, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's... That's quite a diff. So what's what's the biggest difference you think between the Northwest and the friendly South? I mean, exactly just what you said. I mean, the people in the South are friendly. <laughs> um, you know, growing up in Spokane, and we also lived in Seattle as well. Um, we were just really used to the weather, used to the way that people interact. And um, when we moved to Dallas, uh, when I joined Memphis May Fire, you know, and then we moved to Atlanta. You know, and then we went back to Seattle and we were like, whoa, you know, we really prefer the South. Um, and it's, you know, Seattle and, and Spokane, I mean, they have great things to offer. I mean, beautiful scenery and things like that, but just, you know, Southern hospitality and, uh, manners and, uh, <laughs> you know, Southern food as well. We definitely prefer it. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's home for us. And when I was really young, my sister, married one of the Tennessee Titans. So I used to go down and visit her in Nashville. And uh, that's oh, kind of wow. how I fell in love with the city. So when I, when my wife and I were looking at buying our first house, we were like, you know, let's, let's settle down in Tennessee. Cause I think that's where we'll want to be long-term. Blue so. Titans. Yeah. <laughs> we're Seahawks fans anyways, <laughs> okay. you know, just well, by, like, by default. We're a stone's throw away from the Jaguar stadium. Too, right. So, yeah. You know, yeah. It's yeah. a little bad blood between the two. But why, why Nashville and not Memphis? I mean, come on. That was Have you ever visited Memphis, Memphis. before? No, I've never actually been to, I'm actually going to Tennessee for the first time yeah. this summer. Yeah. If you visit Memphis, you'll understand why we don't live in Memphis. Uh, it's a completely <laughs> okay. different vibe, uh, than, than it is in Nashville. It's just, uh, you know, 
there's some pockets in Memphis that are cool, uh, but just as a whole, it's it's nothing like Nashville. Yeah, Na- Nashville is a little more cultured to begin with. It general. is, yeah. yeah so yeah. it's a lot more stuff going on. Are you a fan of country music or? Um, I, I respect all kinds of music. Um, people are going to hate me for saying this, but if I'm going to listen to country music, it's usually like pop country and yeah. not like, you know, old school country. Our guitar player, Sam, like he loves real country music, mm-hmm. you know? Pink Williams, Johnny and Cash, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, you know, these days listening to it just from a songwriter's perspective, I think that, you know, the new Dan and Shay album, uh, which is very much pop country, is the best album of 2018, period. I really? mean, just like the songwriting on it from front to back is unbelievable. I will have to check that out. Yeah. I've, I've seen as a DJ side gig situation, I see the Dan and Shay thing and I know they're country. I just never have listened to it because yeah. usually when I play that stuff out, that's not really what they're looking for. But totally. Yeah. Yeah. I'll no, I mean, they've got a cool story too, man. Like I grew up on this band from San Diego called My American Heart. And the bass player of that band plays for Dan and Shay. Mm. And then they've got a couple other guys in the band that, that, you know, kind of came from the scene. And so, uh, just that crossover, I appreciate that. And, uh, and they're, you know, they're a band that really deserves the success they're having. Yeah. I mean, incredible writers. A lot of, uh, it's crazy. I was thinking about this on the way over to pick you up too. Like a lot of the bands in general from earlier on, like when early 2000s, when I first started, you know, really diving into like hardcore and metalcore and stuff like that. I never thought that these bands would continue on. Yeah. As like, you know, like they're never going to be like, I wouldn't get, I'm not going to go see the Allman Brothers at 15 and, you know, still be seeing them at my age now. Yeah. But that's kind of what's been going on. So that's cool too. And also those who didn't really make it further on in the industry are in music as far as like an artist definitely have found their little niche somewhere in the industry. Yeah, totally. A lot of people do studio musicians and stuff like that. So it's kind of, it's kind of cool to find out where everyone kind of, it is cool, man. Chips fall. It is cool. Yeah. And, and I mean, just kind of seeing everybody's walks of life, you know, I've got friends that are like insanely successful real estate agents that, you know, started just playing in punk bands and stuff, you know? (laughs) And, uh, it's, it's cool, man. It's cool getting older and just kind of seeing everybody fit into their space. Like you were saying. Yeah, Yeah. Like the, uh, Speaking of Texas, because you were talking, you brought yeah. up Dallas, the guy from the guy running in Texas, uh, he was like a skateboarder, punk rock dude. Yeah. Right now he's running for office. So that's so awesome. Beto, Beto or something. Yeah. yeah. That's so awesome. So it's crazy how the times are definitely changing. Um, so you originally from Spokane. Were you doing music in Spokane? Yeah. So I grew up in, in like a very musical household. My mom took us to concerts on the weekends instead of mostly grunge events. Um, sorry. Mostly grunge music and stuff like that. Uh, definitely when I was, when I was young, it was definitely the grunge era and it was sweet. You know, uh, my brother and I were super into it, but, um, my family being like very conservative Christians and stuff, we would go to like, you know, conservative like, mm-hmm. Christian concerts and maybe Reliant K if we got lucky or something. Right. Uh, but no, man, uh, my older brother is a musician. My dad was a musician. So, um, just grew up around it and started performing on stage at the age of six. Um, and just started bands. My dad's neighbor had a son my age and he was a musician and they had built a band room for him. So we would go over there and just write songs and practice. And, and yeah, man, we started a few bands and had a good amount of success in the Northwest. Caught it, called it like the Northwest loop. You know, we would do like <laughs> Seattle, Spokane, Portland, Salt Lake, you know, and, and that was all that we knew of the world. Right. Um, but yeah, man. And I had a couple buddies from Spokane that pulled me aside 
um, I was in a band called Nights in Fire, and uh, we were currently planning on showcasing for uh, Solid State Records. And um, I had a couple of buddies pull me aside that had moved out of Spokane and come back and were visiting, and they had both had success in music. And they were like, listen, we want you to know we think that you have something special. And we've seen you grow up, and we've seen how, you know the gifts that you have, um, and you're not going to succeed if you stay in Spokane. Yeah, it's a it's a trap, you know. Like you'll you'll continue doing the North, Northwest Loop for the rest of your life, and um, you know we have from Spokane, we have had very little successful musicians, uh, and but the ones that we do have, I mean, um, Miles Kennedy mm-hmm. is from Spokane, you know, and one of the best singers of our generation, period. Um, and and off the top of my head, that might be all I can think of, you know. Uh, so. You know, when I got the opportunity to to audition for Memphis, um, I thought this was do or die, you know? Yeah. And uh, so my wife and I had been married for a year. We were 19, and we packed up our forerunner and moved across the country. Yeah, and had never stuff. been to Texas. It was huge culture shock, you know? Um, but yeah, yeah, grew up in Spokane. I love visiting, but but I am glad that I don't live there anymore. Yeah, you know, a lot of people, I, I have family that also live in Washington State, too, so... I kind of, I haven't been there in 20 plus years, but right. you know, um, they seem to visit here a lot. Yeah. So that's, that's <laughs> yeah. all I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. There, you said you got married at, yeah, at I got 18. married at 18. Man. Is that, in hindsight, is that too young? Was it just right? Uh, is that something, you know, I have a daughter and if she told me she was getting married and she was 18, I, admittedly, I'd be a bit, uh, absolutely. About yeah, man. Agreeing um, to well, that. here's, here's the thing. I've got, there's two sides to that. You know, we were both obviously, at 17 years old, living at our parents' houses. And um, we took our parents out to dinner and we were like, hey, we want to get married, you know, a week after we graduate from high school. And my wife's mom was uh, was supportive and very, very cool about it. Um, my, my parents were just, you know, we really want you to think about this, you know, as you get older, your taste might change a little bit. What you want now might not be what you want later. And I would, if I was to give advice to, most 18 year olds in the world, I would say definitely don't get married at 18, you know, um, because people do change a lot. And, and a lot of people don't really know exactly what they want at that age. Mm-hmm. Um, but my wife and I have had an incredibly successful marriage. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact that, um, you know, come having dated since we were, you know, 15 and then getting married at 18, we didn't bring a lot of previous relationship baggage into yeah, our marriage, and stuff. you know, and our first time living outside of our parents' house was when we got our first apartment together. And so when, when you are single in your twenties and you're living on your own and you kind of get into your own process and, and you like the way that you're thinking, you have somebody else move into your space and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. this changes everything. <laughs> I don't know if I like this. And for this us, totally we just don't, dynamic. you know, we experience so much, so many first time things in life to, together. And, um, and I think that that was very important to the success of our, of our relationship. Um, but you know, we both have, man, I think that we've gotten pretty lucky, you know, we, we really, uh, we love to be around each other mm-hmm. and, um, it, it's, it's impossible for me to think about ever getting tired of my wife, you know? Yeah. Uh, but it's not that way for, for, for a lot of people, you know, and different people's love languages are different. So I think that getting married at 18 is scary for, for most people, but for whatever reason it worked for us, man. And, and so I yeah. can definitely see why it would be a little bit nervous. Uh, you'd be nervous about doing so, but you know, also, um, you when do you, you got married a little early too, right, Alex, or no? No, no I mean I was in my twenties, I think, but I did, you know, essentially marry, um, you know, my high school oh, sweetheart. Cool. So I've, I mean, I've known her since I was seventeen. I mean, we weren't dating then per se, but 
So I've had more or less the same experience. Um, but that's obviously it's worked out for you. Yeah, guys, man, so it, absolutely. Great. And and we've had we've had friends that got married young and, and are already divorced and yeah. and you know and and it's good it's good because those you know like th- those relationships weren't right you know mm-hmm. they were poisonous for each other and um, I think it's just one of those things that may, maybe it's not an age thing maybe it's like you just you, you got to tr- tr- try and find yeah. out yeah. you know I think, I think you either are lucky or you're not lucky or you make it work uh, yeah yeah you totally. know, I, unlike you both I spent most all my twenties I should say. In a relationship, but not married. I've never been married before. Yeah. Uh, I recently, I haven't recently met the person I'm with, but you know, about a year and a half ago is when we started our relationship. But uh, yeah, I've I've done the entire 20s. I mean, you can live without a lot of it, you yeah. know. But it'd be cool to have spent a lot of that time in my 20s sharing memories and stuff like that sure. with someone sure. who I'm with now. But because uh, you do find out when you get older that that's a little more endearing to your heart and. You'd like, you like that kind Absolutely. of stuff more, yeah. Yeah. A lot of clarity from life just comes with getting older. <laughs> so many things that like my parents tried to like instill in me as a child. I was like, what? Yeah. No. And now I'm like, I get it. Now I understand. You know? That. Yeah, totally. I totally get it. Now, how much, how much has, um, being a redhead, uh, been an impediment <laughs> to you? <laughs> Dude, what? Now I asked cause I, when I had, you know, a lot more hair, I was a redhead. Really? And, you know, it's funny. Yeah, it's funny. I uh, and I have redheaded children. So, and my wife is redheaded. I don't see so, I don't see ginger um, in your face. I do have freckles. It's probably just this, okay. this light. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had a I had a ginger Oh, that's afro. awesome. Um, thankfully the term ginger didn't really exist yeah. when I was a kid, but I I I was bullied a bit with the old, you know, character flare hair thing. Um, but it, it's just funny um uh, because I see my my kids now as they you know, attend school, and now that ginger ginger is such a prevalent yeah. thing, they say they're not getting bullied or anything like that. Uh, but I just always think like it's it's like a joke, you know, being a redhead when you when you talk about it uh, superficially. But I guess out there somewhere there really are children who are are, are super self conscious totally. about that. And I think a lot of it has to do with. Your complexion, you know, if you're super freckly or, but, but it is, you're unique because uh, I can't think of any other, uh, metalcore bands with, uh, red yeah. singer. So I, I was really joking around if it's ever, if it's ever been a factor. In well, anything. yeah, it has, man. I mean, as a, as a kid, I hated it, you know, um, and I dyed my hair black all the time when I was in <laughs> like middle school and high school. Um, but as at this point in my life and the career that I've had and kind of being in the public eye, it's been so helpful to just help me stand out, yeah, you know, in, in a scene where it's, it's hard to stand out. There's so many bands like trying to do the exact same thing. And, um, I think that it's actually been a huge blessing in helping me stand out and giving me like, you know, a, a, a specific part of, of, of my image that, people recognize you know yeah. and i think that you know in this line of work that's important and so these days i'm, I'm super thankful for it well i mean i always when i was younger in school and stuff like that i was always attracted to women with red hair really yeah that really? was that's my little like uh, that was my little go-to i didn't end up with anyone with red hair but you know yeah it definitely sure. was something that attracted my eye so it's just because they're more redheads are more rare yeah. unless you're talking about alex he lives with the whole household of them apparently but um, <laughs> you know is, is, is your wife a redhead as well? Yep, cool. yep. Wait, and so genetically, we we were it was a certainty that we would have redheaded children, I guess, because it's a recessive it gene yeah. or whatever. Um, but I think for for females, it's kind of a 
it's always been, uh, let's see, perceived as a, a blessing. Um, I, I know a lot of guys who are into redheaded women, but I think it was tougher for totally the boys. Of course. Uh, whatever. I guess we all survived. Yeah. No, you're right, man. It is. I mean, it's being different in any way in elementary school and middle school is not fun. the worst, yeah. dude. It's, it's you just, instead of standing out for all the right reasons, you just become a target yeah. for the bullies, you know? I, I got, get, I get this weird, I have this weird stance with the bullying situation because like, you know, we all, I mean, everyone our age now went through it at some point, but I also think, uh, see, I don't want to talk out of turn. I think some of it is a little overblown too. And a lot of people just don't want to deal with bullying in general, which I agree that bullying is horrible for a lot, a lot of things, but it also does build your own character and help you find yourself a little bit going through some stuff like that too. But yeah, it's a, it's a give and take of like, what's, you know, what's, how much you're going to let good and how much you're going to let bad go. But. You know, what sucks is just at a young age dealing with bullying, you don't know how to mentally process it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you either believe it, you know, believe what people are saying about you and just get depressed and, yeah. and, and feel just a, a complete lack of self-worth. Um, or you try to, you know, say like, yeah, you try to fight it. You, yeah. you try to be the bigger bully in, in, in the situation. And that sucks too, you know? Um, I think that just understanding mental health and understanding the way that things affect you at a young age should be something that's being taught in high school. Yeah. You know, that would have been much more important to me than math. I'll tell you that like right now, dude, I I was thinking the same thing. I was like, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that I could have probably done in high school outside of learning like algebra two. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you could get me with geometry. I could probably use geometry in my everyday life if I was doing, you know, woodwork or carpentry or some kind of building and needed, you know, radiuses and stuff. Yeah. Algebra two. I've never, I've never even used algebra one no. you know, since then. So no. something weird that they teach in school. Yeah. I got, I, f- I flunked out of math for, for cheating. Um, so, <laughs> so and I think that I definitely that, wasn't a math. I wasn't a math whiz by any means. Yeah. <laughs> but circling back, I do think it, it, it's a positive thing. Um, you know, not enough is being done, but it's certainly a positive thing that we treat mental health and mental illness, uh, more seriously. I, I, you know, as someone who, uh, has relatives who really struggled. Um, you know, I feel, I feel sorry for anyone who's not of this generation because it was just swept oh, under man. the rug. People self-medicated with alcohol. I just couldn't imagine, um, trying to deal with that, uh, in an environment where people are not supportive, uh, both doctors and family members. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree, man. I mean, I see it in my own father and in my grandfather. I mean, they're, inability to express the way that they feel about something or hiding it, you know, mm-hmm. um, I see that, you know, and, and it's, I feel so, I feel so lucky to live in a generation where not only are, um, you know, the assets there, the, the resources are there for, um, for, for, for mental health, but also, I mean, like genuine healing, like things that actually work, mm-hmm. you know, therapy saved my life. And, um, I did EMDR therapy, which was developed for soldiers with post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, and I mean, dude, it saved my life. When you say e- EMDR therapy, what, ex- explain that a little bit more. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it was developed for soldiers with post-traumatic stress syndrome while you're sleeping at night. Um, so when you, when you go through things on a daily basis, like right now, the conversation that we're having right. and everything, we're experiencing it in our frontal lobe. If I touch this, like I feel it and I experience it in my frontal lobe. And at nighttime, when you sleep, 
what happens is called rapid bilateral eye movement. Your eyes go left and right really quickly. And that physical motion takes things from your frontal lobe and it moves them to other parts of your brain where you can remember them, but you're not experiencing okay. them. When you go through something traumatic, oftentimes that memory gets stuck in your frontal lobe and you go through life as if you're experiencing it on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I mean, every minute of every day. So I was in an airplane that everyone thought was going to crash. And, um, and, and for two years after that moment, when we landed from that flight, I never felt like we landed. I never felt safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had two years of that and it just, it spiraled into incredibly bad anxiety and depression. Um, and so when you go into EMDR therapy, there's multiple different versions of it, but I did two of, of, of some, a lot of people just do one of them, but I did two at the same time where you hold buzzers in your hands that go left and right. And you look at a dot on a screen that goes left and right. And you just start talking. You don't even have to necessarily talk about the traumatic situation, even though we did, and it does help. Um, but you just talk about it and there's these key points that come up. There's these things that you realize. And as you're realizing those things, your brain is literally connecting the dots. You know, anxiety is like, uh, it's an alarm. Um, and, and it's your body telling you something needs to be dealt with, you know? And so for me, this alarm was going off, but I didn't know what needed to be mm-hmm. dealt with. I didn't understand it. And it wasn't until my brain started piecing the, the, the pieces of the puzzle together that it started to make sense to me. And then I finally had relief, you know? Um, so yeah, it was, it was life changing. And I think even just traditional therapy is, is amazing. Yeah. And you know, like the, the Hollywood perception of, of counseling being for people, or even like a psychiatrist or whatever being for crazy people. I mean, that sucks, dude. Yeah. That sucks so bad. Even the the term mental health or mental illness. It just makes you sound a little it off. It makes you cringe, yeah. dude. And it's like everybody you see is going through something. Uh, yeah, no, not not one person has a perfect life. No, but everyone think it is, but... everyone in the world could benefit. You could have a billion dollars in your bank account. You could, you know, be the most successful at this or that and you could have a perfect marriage. You could you have the best upbringing, you know, like your parents never screwed you up or whatever, <laughs> but it's like there's something there yeah. that needs to be dealt with. Cuz when you're growing up, there's too much that you're trying to process. And when you go through something traumatic, there's too much that you're trying to process and you literally can't. You physically yeah. can't. And so you have to make that decision later in life to deal with those things that are affecting you on a daily basis. And I'm just lucky enough that my sister's a therapist and knew to tell me that I needed to do right. that, you know, but in high school, man, they didn't tell me anything. <laughs> and your guidance counselor didn't really tell you appropriately. Guidance counselors, dude. I mean, I'm yeah. sure there's some great ones out there, but mine was a joke, dude. I think most of them kind of were. It was, yeah. I don't even think she was a counselor. Generally speaking, they yeah, I don't. I don't think she was a counselor. Even. Yeah. I, I doubt that she had her, you know, her degree. Some teacher that just got up lumped right. into that yeah, role, yeah 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 it's like community service yeah. for teachers yeah so that is now uh, would you sorry is that therapy sorry, is that therapy the one because you said it was also for uh people coming back from it was developed for like soldiers that. with post-traumatic stress, um, stress syndrome yeah is that the one that they take like mdma with or because there is that no okay, no no, no that's sure. completely different no okay yeah this is just um it's literally just re- recreating rapid rapid bilateral eye movement and moving memories from your frontal lobe to other parts of your brain and it sounds so invasive but it's not at all it's like some it's weird what computer your body type is, stuff yeah. is naturally doing yeah you know and so and yeah yeah very important stuff so I, I don't want to make you feel weird about it, but I do want to find out more about the plane that you were on. Because yeah. I hate flying myself. So, yeah, yeah. like, I like to, for some reason, you like to stare at car crashes. If you hate car crashes, I like to hear about this kind of stuff. Luckily, yeah, luckily, um, it, it's not bothering me. If, it, if we would have been, you know, three years ago, my palms would be, like, dripping sweat yeah. right now, and I'd be shaking. And uh, But no, man, so um, I was, I flew from New Jersey to Orlando to track a guest vocal for a band. And, um, the band had traveled down to Pensacola and I was flying from Orlando back to Pensacola to meet up with the band the next day. Not even a long flight. It was a, like less than 30 minutes. Yeah. I was yeah. Say, it's not even long. So, um, 
we got to the airport. I got to the airport that I had stayed up all night um, with my producer Cameron Mizell, and the flight was early. And I got to the airport, and um, all these people were like walking out on the tarmac, and I'm like, "What's what's this all about?" And we get out there, and it's like this little ten seat prop plane, you know, because it's such a short flight. And I'm so I text Done that um, before. Yeah, so I I, I text I send a video to the guys, like a, a joke video of of me walking on the plane. I'm like, "Pray for me," you know. And um, we get up in the air. I mean, we're we're not even up for a minute yet. And um, the plane just starts, we've, we go into a really bad storm and the plane starts getting thrown to the left and the right 50 feet at a time. I mean, it was like, it was so violent, mm-hmm. you know, there's turbulence and then there's violence. Well, and there's a was, difference, there's a difference between people who have ever only been the on scarier, like, the, the, like, the, the uh, smaller like the plane, the scarier, bigger planes, like big commercial planes yeah. or three or more rows of seats. But yeah, I, ex- yeah, I yeah, went on absolutely. something like that last year. Absolutely. So, you know, we were up there and, um, and as soon as it started happening, I, what I kind of did, I've never liked flying, but what I've always done is I've kind of just like scanned the, like the room, right? Yeah. I'm like looking at people and what their reactions are and businessmen who fly all the time and stuff like that. Like they're usually very calm, mm-hmm. you know, everything. And everyone's like gripping for dear life and like shaking. And, and I see a lady next to me yeah. and you she don't starts hear praying. That. And then I look to my right and the flight attendant is holding on and she says, Lord, help us. And at that point, my body was like shut down. Yeah. And I was like, not from, not, not, not from, from a, the crew, no. not from a flight attendant. Yeah. And so what I didn't realize was that in that moment, I had my first panic attack ever, but mm. I didn't know. I had no idea. I'd never struggled with anxiety or anything until that, that point. So I didn't know what a panic attack was. I literally thought that we were going to die and my body felt like I was dying. Like mm-hmm. I was in fight or flight, you know? And so, um, we landed, I mean, it wasn't you know, even 20 minutes later and everyone's just like, got this like cr- look on their face, you know, like what just happened to us. And, and I, as we touch the wheels, touch the ground, my body is like off centered mm-hmm. and, and I'm, and, and I feel like vertigo almost, but not like physical vertigo, like mental vertigo. Like I can't, my, my brain has not grasped something which was safety. Um, and the bus comes and picks me up at the airport and like everything just, I feel like I'm looking through a different lens. Yeah, at you're, life. Watch, you're just watching a movie. It's weird, dude. Yeah. And um, that night I woke up in the middle of the night covered in sweat, having no idea what was going on. Um, and I kind of dealt with those symptoms for, for a while. And then we were back in Jersey and I was up in the front lounge and I was eating potato soup and, um, and I felt like a 747 was about to pl- crash through the, the window. And I look around at everyone. I'm like, are you guys okay? And they're like, yeah, what's wrong? And I stand up and my heart's like, bum, 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 bum. And I go outside and I'm like just trying to catch my breath. And I walk into the bathroom in the venue because I'm thinking that I might just have like a stomach bug or something, mm-hmm. you know. And I hear like an audible voice say, you're not worth it. Kill yourself. Oh, wow. And I was like, whoa. What is going on? Like, yeah. This isn't me. You know what I mean? Like this is, I don't go through whatever this is. And so I'm convinced at that point that I'm going to have a heart attack. So, um, they rush me to the hospital. And when we get into the waiting room, the doctor comes up and he puts his hand on him. He goes, what's going on, son? And right as he touches my body, all of those emotions just kind of like go and leave out of my feet. And I was like, okay. Um, I was like, I don't know what's happening. I think I'm having a heart attack. And he like asked me some questions about my lifestyle and what I do for a living and everything. And he's like, I think you were having a panic attack. And I think that it's time that you slow down. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that's not going to happen. So <laughs> what else do you got, doc? You know? Um, and at that, at that point in my life, I was treating my body so poorly. And, you know, um, so he gave me a bottle of Xanax, just like any good American doctor would do, there you know? You and, uh, I went back to the bus and I took one and it didn't help. And I had two years from that point on where it got worse and worse 
and it got to, it led to depression and I felt like I would lay in bed at night and I could see this like dark figure standing over my body. Um, and back then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer. That's like something that a lot of people know about me, about my faith and me being outspoken about that. So like, I was like relating it all to like demonic activity Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. spiritual warfare and, and, you know, having come out of it and come out on the other side and knowing what I'd know about mental health now, um, I think that the human body is just simply imperfect. And I was going through something that was very scary and a lot of people go through it. And it's hard to say that I'm thankful to have ever gone through it. But I'm so thankful that I can understand what people are talking about when they say that they're well, going and through And also, now. you're thankful to be on this side of it now. Absolutely. Of, yeah. Absolutely. To, 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 so you consider yourself cured, I, I guess. Um, yeah. I, I mean, think, obviously, any, anyone can relapse, but you're in a good place now. I'm in a I great place now. I, yeah, I'm in a really great place well, now. I mean, you fly. I fly, yeah. You, have, you flown, have you flown on a smaller plane since then? No, so I actually became status just shortly after that. Um, became status with Southwest. They have one one size of plane. Oh, nice. They only have like the seven thirty seven and seven forty seven or whatever. So like all my friends are like, "Dude, why do you care so much about Southwest?" And I'm like, "Shut up." Yeah. It's like very important to me. You know what I mean? Uh, so you know, Southwest is is awesome. And I mean, their pilots. You know, like I've done all sorts of research since since that time. <laughs> There's this rad website called AskThePilot.com. And, um, it's just like all these resources for people who are like nervous about anything regarding airplanes. It explains turbulence and why it's not. I don't think, I don't think, I, I honestly don't know if that even matters. So I think someone who is afraid of flying. Yeah. Will be afraid of flying. Yeah. Cause I have like, cause I've flown most of my adult life since yeah. I was a kid. Yeah. You know, so I've, I'm used to being on a plane, but that has no, that doesn't change the fact that like my first time on a six, eight seater or whatever yeah. was insane. That's nothing like a regular plane that I was used to. Nothing like yeah, it. Yeah. Like when people, like you said, 50 feet one way, 50 feet the other way. Like I felt like the plane was on ice the entire time because the Absolutely. plane just kind of moves in a weird way to where like diagonal yeah. and stuff. And that opened, like, you know, I was, cr- I was white knuckling the thing. The Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No, it sucks, man. I think that different people perceive things differently. Um, you know, my wife like loves adrenaline, like loves roller coasters. And, I mean, I can do that too, you know, but all that kind of stuff. About- like I could die up here. Absolutely. That's my thing. But there is absolutely nothing natural about being 30,000 feet up in a steel tube. You should be afraid of it. Gravity yeah. is here for a reason. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and you should, I think that you have, people that are scared of flying have every right to be scared of flying, but I think that they do need to at least do the research to understand that some of the things that they might think is happening is not actually happening. Right, right, right. You know, the noises of like the the landing gear that, that they make when you're sitting on the tarmac <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. It's like, it's... You know, that, that website I was talking about is awesome for that, you know? And that way, when you start to freak out, you can just be like, yeah, I'm going to freak out. But I know in the back of my head that driving to Kroger is more dangerous than being See, in this airplane right now. I've heard that. I've heard that my entire yeah. life, but I've never, I mean, I've been in a car accident. I've been in two car accidents, but yeah. you know, I don't, I've survived two car accidents. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many plane crashes I'll survive. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. it's like, well, you won't be in one because it's just statistically uh so unlikely it is and, true and obviously that's that's the reason it, it is safer but hey at least you can still fly some people you know what was the uh the football guy john madden yeah uh, i guess he's retired now but he in his heyday was probably the most famous football 
announcer ever, but he was so scared of flying that he he just couldn't do it. And he was doing these Monday night football gigs, which are obviously on the bus geographically all around the country and would have to, you know, do it on the road. Yeah. Uh, just drive there in his special tour bus or whatever. Yeah, that's kind of cool in its own way. It's kind of sweet. Yeah. I know, you know, Travis, uh, Travis Barker doesn't fly anymore, I, I believe, um, after he, but he like actually got in a plane crash. So yeah, like yeah. rightfully so, dude, yeah, yeah. you know his, what I mean? That crash is a little different. Um, yeah, but yeah, man, I mean, it's just, uh, it is, it is unnatural that we traveled that way um but it's so much a part of my life that i don't have a choice yeah how often do you you guys must travel overseas and stuff like that we fly all the time yeah, yeah, yeah. So. i just flew to hawaii and back with my wife uh a little over a week ago and it's like 17 hours travel day <sighs> each way you know um so yeah like you just you have to try to wrap your head around it and um and yeah but i still don't like it i never have liked it yeah. You know, but it's funny, like, there's so, to so many different aspects of flying that people don't like. A lot of people are like, I feel crammed. I feel like in this space. I don't have a problem with that at all. You know, you put like a 700 pound dude next to me or whatever. I'm fine. You know what I mean? It doesn't mm-hmm. bother me. Um, but uh, other people are like, okay, well, we're over the ocean. So if we crash over the ocean, there's like nothing that we can, we can't land anywhere. You know, the, the, that doesn't bother me at all. But literally, as the plane is ascending, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm like, this is not normal. Yeah. You know? Did you feel that little like G force of like when you, when you leave the ground and oh, yeah. the plane's fully off the ground? You yeah. can tell. And it's just like, oh, it was, no. this, this, this machine is, is far too heavy to this float. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope that me couple. saying this crap doesn't like scare anybody or, or whatever. Cause that would suck. You should but be scared of flying. That's yeah. It's, it's, I mean, you should be. it's pretty wild that. You know that that we do that as human beings that we travel through the sky. That's pretty wild to me. And, and as frequently that, as we do. Yeah. You know, and I, I like you. Like you, I I also like scan the room if like I hear like if there's a bump. Yeah. Or something, I'm like, okay, I'll look around and okay, well they're still serving drinks. Uh, that's, yeah. That's exactly. Not that bad. Exactly. You know what I mean? She's exactly. still there doing the pretzels, but yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I I can't even stand when they start easing off the throttle and the the G force just. Yeah. Gives, gives up on you a little bit because I yeah. feel like, oh, I'm falling out of my chair. I'm falling out of the sky. I'm like freaking out. So. That's, I mean, that's all so valid, man. I mean, that's, I know exactly what you're talking over about. The oceans. We've already yeah. ruined, already ruined the Guitar Center sponsorship. Now, now you're trying to ruin the JetBlue one. <laughs> I think let's, uh, as long so as it's not Southwest, circle. right? Southwest is, dude. Yeah. I, did, I specifically did not mention Southwest. <laughs> They're a great airline, man. Uh, but to, to, to go back to the band, um, for fear that we might spend the next two hours talking about flying because it's such an interesting conversation. It really is, yeah. Uh, admittedly. You've been in this band, or you've, let's see, you're around, you're 30? Yeah. Is that right? So, has, has singing in a band been your only full-time job ever? No, 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 no. So, um, you know, I started working at, when I was 16. Um, I worked okay. at a movie theater. I worked at a postage meter company shipping supplies. I sold cell phones for Verizon. Um, I worked at Hot Topic was actually my first job ever. Um, I worked at Guitar Center for a little while. Um, I did a lot. But those weren't full-time, full-time gigs, right? You were still in school. Um, 16 and 17, no, but then at 18, yeah, at 18, I had three different jobs that were full-time that not all at the same time, but I had, I had okay. gone through three different jobs that were full-time and, and then even moving to Dallas and joining the band, I had, I'd worked at Guitar Center for a little while when I was there. Um, and then once the band started touring full, full time, it's been about 11 years and, and yeah, it's been, been my, my main source of thing. You know, I started a hair product company a few years ago as well, but, um, but yeah, yeah. Do you think you could, do you think you could go back to that, that sort of life? Uh, we, our last interview was with, um, Mark of Vale Maya and 
he more or less said he doesn't know how he'd survive doing a regular uh monotonous nine to five job. No, I couldn't. There's no way. And 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 I and I and I wouldn't. You know, I think that um I have there I mean there's a very good chance I won't be playing music forever, you know. It's, I mean not not very many people get that opportunity, but um I just have too much of an entrepreneur mindset and um you know, obviously with with my hair product company, but also just I would, I would much rather or much sooner go and like work with a label or like work with a booking agency or do something that like remains in the, in, in, in music rather than like going back to like a, a straight up like desk nine to five job or whatever. You know, I would still need to travel and I would still need to be involved in a creative process one way or another. Mm-hmm. How- now you, go ahead. sorry, this happens a lot when I'm on the phone because I, I can't interpret the, 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 the natural tenor of the room in yeah. which to interject. Uh, now, I was going to ask about, I was, as I usually do, just looking around the internet and, um, it had mentioned that, that the single you guys wrote, uh, you know, I suppose early, I think it was on the Challenger, the Challenger album, Prove Me Right, uh, according to Wikipedia was about Trust Kill Records, mostly, uh, your, your first label. And I was just, I couldn't find any further information, uh, you know, about that. I was just looking, uh, for some background because, Obviously, Trust Kill has been such a, or was, it's, it's not around anymore, but Trust Kill in the early 2000s was, was one of the iconic metalcore labels. And, mm. uh, I was just curious to know more about that, your experience with, with Trust Kill. Obviously, yeah. you guys have been with Rise Records for a while now, but. Yeah, I, I, you know, like we had a, we had signed a Trust Kill at a very unfortunate time. Um, there was so much drama surrounding the label and the other artists on the label. Um, and because of that, you know, we didn't get some of the opportunities that we should have gotten, um, at that stage. And, uh, and, and so it was, it was a tough time to, to be signed to Treskill for sure. Josh and I, uh, Josh, the owner of the label, he and I still talk all the time and, um, there's no bad blood there, but be in that season, trying so desperately to succeed in music and only wanting that and then having someone kind of essentially standing in your way um it was extremely frustrating and there was definitely some fuel to the fire in that song yeah okay and and the band the power structure in this band i'm just curious because you're you're the the i suppose the figurehead everybody when they think of memphis mayfire probably thinks of you you're not an original member obviously uh, I sp- I think Kellen's the only original member. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So I mean, so no. who call who calls the shots in in the band? Is it a democracy or is it like Kellen's the boss or Maddie's the boss? Um, Kellen is very gifted as as a writer. You know, Kellen is like insanely talented. Um, more so than I think people understand or give him credit for. You know, like he's he's brilliant. Um, and when it comes to the business things, I've just always naturally gravitated towards that thing, th- those kind of things anyways. Um, so, you know, the way that we are structured is that, you know, I deal directly with management and we make a lot of decisions like on a daily basis. And, um, whenever there's something that really does require the group to get involved, you know, like we'll bring them all in on an email, obviously, but the guys are pretty much used to just like decisions being made and then they get an email and that's, that's it, you know, but, um, neither I nor management would ever make a decision that would, you know, that would put anyone in a bad situation or do something that they didn't want to do i've having been in the band for 11 years like we know these guys well enough that when we're you know negotiating for tours or talking about what kind of transportation we're going to be on for a certain tour i pretty much know exactly what everyone is wanting and and looking for you know um so you know it's 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 healthy it's healthy the way the way that we have it now for you you've since you've released a couple solo albums or uh, 
two solo albums, right? Or is it yeah, just one? Uh-huh. Yeah. Is that is it harder to create an album as a as a solo artist or in a band? On one hand, you have input from other individuals, but I suppose it's some on some level that that's a curse more than a blessing. Dude, it's much harder to create an album as a band than it is as a solo artist. But let me say this. I'm embarrassed of a lot of those songs on my solo albums, you know, because I didn't have the outside input of people being like, yo, dude, this needs to change. <laughs> you know, it was just me and a producer and a budget. And I was like, cool. And I was like feeling something in the moment. I think this is rad. And then we put it out. And then like a few years later, I'm like, oh, well, you dang. Do, you do grow and mature in yeah. general. So you, you're, you probably feel the same way about Memphis May Fire stuff. Absolutely. Too, you know, yeah. So. Old, older Memphis stuff. Absolutely. But, you know, like having the input of other musicians that I really respect and it can get really annoying and frustrating at times, but it's healthy and it needs and it really is valuable. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I wish that there would have been more people involved on on that first solo record. Yeah, I did. More less yes men yeah. so to speak I had yeah. like literally just one yes man in a budget and that was it that was the whole yeah. team so it's like whatever we come up with so, today that's how it's going on the record so how how are you gonna when you if you do another solo album is that you're gonna make a concerted effort to have more opinions to get uh, additional perspectives how are you gonna sort on of my second that? on my second solo record it's called unstoppable the the it's the last one i put out i co-wrote every song on the record so I knew after the first one that that's what I wanted to do. And um, living in Nashville, I mean, it's so easy to, you know, like the assets are everywhere. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I just I would I just wrote with people that I respected, people that I knew of that I had heard of, um, and and it was awesome. It was an awesome process. And even looking back since that record, I'm like, man, I wish I would have done things just a little differently. But it's far less embarrassing than my first effort, <laughs> for sure. Well, you also don't know so how, how, did, how come in general the first time around. Yeah. How come uh, that album didn't come out? The second album didn't come out on Rise. Um, well, because that that project is like very much heavily aimed towards Christian radio, and Rise doesn't have anyone in office that like services to, to Christian radio or really even understands that market very well. Um, and they were fully fully aware of that, and they were supportive of whatever I wanted to do, which is so cool. It's so cool of them. You know, I look back at like that first record that I put out on Rise, and like they should have been like, dude. <laughs> Don't put this out, man, especially doing? on Rise. Like, what are you doing? But they were like, Maddie, whatever whatever you want to do, we support it, you know? And that's been so cool. Uh, hey, it did pretty well, did it not? Yeah. Rise should have made some money on that thing. Yeah, man. I, I think, I think that they, that they did. And, and, um, and I think that for how wildly outside of the, of the realm of Memphis's music it is and was, um, I think people were, you know, for the, for the most part, like, pretty supportive of it you know like they're like that's cool even if they're like that's not for me but cool that you're doing that so so yeah man so uh i signed for my last record to a label called bec and they're like uh the christian radio branch of like tooth and nail solid state records interesting so um so you are you um do you write the lyrics for memphis, memphis may fire all yourself or is that like a co-situation okay yeah, yeah always have. um so that leads me to my next question because you kind of just brought up the uh whole um Religious radio and, yeah, and Christianity uh-huh. and stuff like that. So, does your how does your upbringing with your with your mom and dad and your family and just the way you grew up does that in your in your faith does that cross over into your music a little bit or Absolutely. do you try to separate the two? Absolutely, man. Yeah, I um, it it does. It, I mean, it just it does. Especially, I mean, with the band and with my solo stuff. It's funny because. In, in Memphis's music, I've, there's always been like a spiritual undertone just because it's always been such a big part of my life. 
But when I started going through anxiety and depression and really like seeking after God for the first time in my life and like trying to understand who he really was in my life, um, I just started to be more outspoken in interviews about my faith. And so when we put out Unconditional, that album is like, you know, half about what it's like to have a panic attack and half about what it's like to believe that you're loved by the supernatural creator of the universe, which mm-hmm. doesn't make for a great metal album. You know what I mean? So our, uh, our fans were just like confused, I think, but it's funny. Like you look back at like what gave us our start, you know, like that song, the center. And it's like, that song is so much heavily about my faith, you mm-hmm. know? And so I think it's like, it was just when I started talking about it in interviews that people were like, Whoa, 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 whoa. what's going Don't on? Shove here? that down right. my throat. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm like, this is literally all I have to offer. Cause it's what I'm going through in my life. You it's know, kind of, it's also kind of strange too. Cause there's a lot of bands, you know, and a lot of bands could be listening in as well, but a lot of bands that are out there, like, um, August Burns Red and stuff like that, yeah. that are, you know, they're a Christian metalcore band too. So, uh, it's, it's weird to find a balance between like, like you said, just it being a part of the persona and everything yeah. like that in, I guess, people that aren't religious to have it shoved down their throat. So totally. To yeah. Yeah. And I mean, dude, Wikipedia says that we're a Christian band and that's not the, case at all. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I've never once well, We were going to ask that too. No, yeah, I've never I've never once claimed um that all my band members have the same beliefs as me, nor have I ever asked them to. I don't, you know, or forced anything on them at all. Um they're good guys and they stand behind me in whatever it is that I'm going through in whatever season of my life that I want to talk about. And um and so, you know, the the internet just calls us a Christian man, but that's not the case at all. Um, now your father your father was a pastor, right? He was. Was yeah. Wikipedia correct in that sense? Yeah. Does Wikipedia still say that I'm the keyboardist of Memphis Mayfire? <laughs> because... No, I didn't see that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it's how did your it. dad feel? You know, you tell your dad you're joining a metalcore band, which I, I, you know, metal typically would be a genre perceived as being, uh, you know, full of sinners for for lack of a, a more elegant, eloquent way of putting it. Totally. How, what, what was your dad's reaction? Dude, my dad's cool, man. So, um. He definitely didn't understand the music aspect of it, you know, and, and, and I get that question all the time, like, man, my parents don't get it. What do I do? And I'm like, let them not get it. Yeah. That's okay. If I have kids, I'm going to hate what they listen to as well. It's just going to happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's going to happen. You're not, no one's going to understand the next generation of music. Like even right now, dude, like all that like mumble rap crap Baby that's shark. out there, dude, like is so offensive to me. I'm like, there's, this is not music. You know, um, and, and, and I'm, I'm sure that my kids will listen to something in that, in that realm or whatever. Um, so I get it. And I, and I never blame my parents for not like totally understanding the music, but now fast forward all these years and, and them having like supported me in my career and then like listening to the bands that we tour with and everything, they're our biggest fans now, dude. Yeah. Like they love our records. Um, and so, you know, but my dad, man, there's a lot of really awful religious people. And I think that people who hate religion don't hate God. I think they hate Christians and rightfully so. There's yeah, a lot I think of they hate the, the persona that they perceive in their head. Absolutely, yeah. man. I mean, there's been more Christians that have drugged the name of Jesus through the mud than atheists period, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but what Jesus does ask of us in the Bible, like the foundation of who Jesus was and what he asks of us is to love people and to, and, and not to go and love Christians, mm-hmm. but to go and love people in the darkest places, you know? And I think that a lot of people come out to metal shows and come out to hardcore shows, uh, because it's a place where they fit in, where they don't feel like they fit in anywhere else in the world. And it's like, man, if I get to talk to an entire crowd of people who feel broken in their core and just love on them, I'm doing the work of God, mm-hmm. period. Yeah. And that's awesome to me. And, and, and so I know my dad never expected me to go and, and, and to, to play for Christians only, you know, uh, but he's the kind of guy that has a really good head on his shoulders and he understands the gospel the way that it's meant to be understood. 
Yeah, I um I grew up in a kind of Catholic background too. Okay. Uh, I'm no longer religious, so to sure, speak. Sure. Yeah. Uh, however, I do have like a relationship with the universe. Sure. You know, like, and I think that kind of all boils down <laughs> somewhat in the same realm. Sure. You know, uh, it's a belief or a faith in something. Yeah. Or another, but um, did you find that when you started like uh when you started becoming more vocal about your stuff, whether in the lyrics? Did you find that your fan base followed you or did you kind of start getting another 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 type of fan base or That's a good question man. I think that yeah, definitely a mix of both. I think that um you know when when there's interviews on YouTube of me like talking about my relationship with Jesus, obviously there's like Christian soccer moms that are like, "All right, I'll take you to that show." You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. So um so I think You that, made the newsletter this week. Yeah, so I think that we did we did gain kind of lat, you know, um, like the four today following, so, you know, so to speak. Um, and, and that's cool, man. And we, we, we're so thankful for that. And I think that there's a good amount of Memphis fans that were like, you know, I mean, you, I just like the way your music sounds, you know yeah. what I mean? Talk about whatever you want. And then there's people who, you know, who were like so offended by it. And I'm never offended by somebody being offended at me talking about religion because it's like, man, if religion or if God or if Christianity offends you, then that means somebody hurt you. Yeah. Or there's some other situation going on within your personal yeah, life. Yeah. And I don't blame yeah. you for feeling that way. I mean, dude, a lot of the people that I know that like hate the church were burned by the church in a way that I don't know if I would have come back from either. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so I get it. And I don't, I don't take, I don't hold that against them at all. Um, but regardless, my faith is such an important part of my life that I'm not going to not talk about it mm-hmm. just because it offends somebody. You know, my relationship through, with God and, and, and him walking through that season of anxiety and depression with me is so incredibly valuable to me that I would feel worse about withholding that information from people. Mm-hmm. You can do whatever you want and you can believe whatever you want. And I'm not here to force anything down your throat, but this is my story and it's important that I tell it honestly. Right. You know? Sure. Um, now for the people, the, 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 I guess, the, the other members of your band or the label, Rise Records, you know, is that a conversation that's had, uh, you know, for commercial reasons, Maddie, we'd like you to tone down the religious rhetoric. It's, it's not doing us any favors. We support your beliefs, but just don't talk about it. Yes. Is that the kind of thing that's happened? Yes, absolutely. It has. And what's your, you know, what's your response to that? Uh, you you stand firm or it's like, I'll, I'll, uh, it, I'll give in a little bit. In the, for the season, sake of in the, the season the that band. I was in, when when that conversation, yeah, uh, sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, <laughs> um, no, no, it's in, my fault. In the season that I was in, and, and and that's never come from the band members, um, you know, but the the season that I was in when that conversation was had originally, it was, it's my faith or I'm out, you know. Like, I felt such a calling, I felt such a responsibility to be 100% honest and not hold anything back in that season that, um, that every, that, that my, my response was like, find another singer. Mm-hmm. You know? Because it would be such a disgrace for me to go through something so powerful and to not tell people about it just because we want to sell more records. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's I think. Shitty, but, you know, it, it's, but I understand. It's weird seeing both sides of it. I do, too, I, do yeah. I do understand where, where people are coming from. Like, this is a business, you know? Um, and I understand the business aspect of music, trust me. Um, but in that point of my life, the conviction was 
far outweighed the, the business, far outweighed the money, the success. A lot younger time too, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, were, you were younger. I was. I mean, you so know, you're steady. Was, you're more like to hold your ground, so to speak, and not really. Totally, and I and I definitely f- was offended. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was offended and I was hurt because I I had people that were on my team, so to speak, that I thought were were there through that. You know, not and letting you be you, not letting me be me. But I mean, dude, it's you know, like that's that's long gone, and um, and we have a great support system with our record label, and the guys in my band are awesome. And, uh, you know, we went through those seasons and, and, and we got through them. So, um, you brought as your, per- has your, sorry, I have so many questions. I know I, go ahead, go ahead. Take I'm overbearing. Off. Uh, has your, uh, you know, you, you talked about the conviction you had then, um, insinuating that while you still have the conviction, perhaps you're not as, um, you know, adamant about it. So has that, um, you know, have you toned down? Um, some, on some level, um, that, sorry, I, I didn't have a, I didn't have a fitting end to that sentence. Have you toned down your, your approach, um, because you are older, uh, more mature and, and period. Yeah. So, um, in that season, when I was writing those records, it was very important. And I think that it was very important that those records come out. And as I stepped into the writing process for this record, uh, for our new one for broken. Um, I just had some moments with God. I just had some moments in prayer where I was like, God, what do you want me to write about? I've written about this. I've written about that, my relationship, my faith, my this, that, a lot of the music industry stuff that I've been through. And, and I really felt this clear mission for this record to not be it. I felt like God was saying, when you were at your worst with anxiety and depression, it didn't help for someone to come tell you, Hey, everything's going to be okay. Hey, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, a a pat on the shoulder. It is important for you to realize, but in that moment, you're never going to realize that. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I was, you know, I always felt, I always felt this, this need to make our music really hopeful, you know, to always offer a light at the end of the tunnel, to always offer hope. Because I felt like if there, people were listening to our music and they were feeling hopeless and I wrote a song that felt hopeless, that I was making the problem worse. But the first time that I ever felt any relief with anxiety was when I was listening to a CD that was a microphone in the middle of a room with a bunch of people sitting around it talking about what it's like to have a panic attack. And that was not hopeful at all. Mm-hmm. But what it gave me was this reassurance that I wasn't alone in it, you know, that, that other people understood what I was going through and that I wasn't going crazy. So I wanted this record to be specifically it's called broken because it's for broken people. And I think we're all broken in one way or another, you know, yeah. um, find someone unbroken. I'm yeah. they're a liar. <laughs> but, but that's, but that's what the record is. I wanted it to be full of anthems for people that were, that were going through seasons of life that were painful and they didn't know how to voice it. And I wanted these songs to be their songs, you know? And so it's not necessarily that I've toned down the spirituality of my lyrics, um, or that I've even stepped away from faith at all, or that I've matured out of it or anything like that. It's really just that I felt like God wanted me to write a record that was honest about what it's like to be hurt because that's what you were friends with. I I don't know that you are, but you were, you were, I want to say close or somewhat close with Maddie Montgomery before today. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, we did a couple tours together and we had some really valuable conversations. Um, you know, this was now, how did years you, ago. What was your perspective when he, you know, obviously he, he took a lot of flack, I'll say, um, particularly in the, the online metal music world. Um, and you know, my site was one of those that, that sort of, uh, I guess, 
cast it in a negative light, for better or for worse. But I'm just curious for you as a bystander to, to Maddie going through that um, for saying, presumably saying what he firmly believed in, um, catching so much flack. Yeah, man. Um, I have a lot of respect for Maddie as a person. I, I love that dude. He's got a good heart, and he's been a huge encouragement to me over the past four or five years. Um, I will say that Maddie and I have two different types of ministry, so to speak. You know, like um, he feels very convicted to to get in front of a group of people and like straight up like lay down the gospel like in like a loud manner. And I just really believe that if if my beliefs are something that someone else is interested in, um, I think that that's because I've loved them, that they mm-hmm. trust me first. You know, you're so comfor- you're, you're a little more comfortable with them. Totally. Yeah. I want to I want to stand outside. If people want to talk to me about my relationship with God, I want to stand outside of the bus after the show and have them just straight up ask me questions and I'll answer them. Um, but I but, you know, if if I've ever come off preachy on stage or whatever, if I've ever been like saying something on stage that felt like I was like being preachy or forceful, it was really just me talking to myself, <laughs> figuring things out in my head, you know. And um, and so, you know, we we do we do things differently, Maddie and I. Um, but I but I respect him um, and, and, and who he is and what he believes and how he preaches. You know, that's that's his thing. All right. You, I appreciate that. Yeah. You brought up. I, I also want. I also wanted to ask. Sorry, last question, David. That I'll that I'll uh, just plow straight ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, the, the the whole Tyler Carter thing. Um, uh, Tyler of issues. Uh, I guess they wrote a song, and it, the 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 quote I read. He said, "I'm you know really good friends with Maddie, but um, I, I the quote I have it in front of his personality called is about Maddie Mullins or people who put their fame above others." place or purpose in life and when i i remember when that happened and i i was sure that fame um was a mistake and the word should have been faith um and i did a little more research and it seems like every place i found that quote it said the word fame which was confusing to me is that accurate he was calling out your fame or your desire for fame i suppose uh dude i mean i was just as confused and caught off guard by the whole thing as you are i mean it, it was like the strangest Honestly, dude, I think it was just like a desperate reach for a song concept. I mean, like, Tyler and I had spent time together, and I mean, like, we never had had any feud or, or anything like that. Um, so it was just like, it caught me off guard. It was so strange. I was like, really? I was like, you felt so strongly about something that you and I have never talked about? To, that you, you know that you needed to write a song about it. Like, what are you? Talking? So he never, he never approached you, or had, not once. He, he never dude, no. gave you a heads up. Nothing. No, it's just it, all of a sudden there's this any, song. Any conversation whatsoever about that, or really anything deep for that matter, ever. You know, um, so it just it was weird, dude. And and I and we had a text conversation after that. It was basically just me being like, "Are you serious? <laughs> like, if you if there was if you had some sort of issue with like the way that I did anything, which I'm still confused about." Um, why wouldn't you call me? You know, like if we're friends, you know, if that's the beginning of the statement, why wouldn't you call me or why wouldn't you text me? And so that we could clear things up and instead, you know, like let's take this thing that's fictional and create a song out of it. You know, Um, was that the end of the friendship? We haven't had much interaction since. No. Um, yeah, it was strange, man. That was a strange one. Um, and, yes. and I think that me being a Christian, right, it's like I'm an easy target. You know what I mean? Like people are like always waiting for me to like do something or mm-hmm. like say something that they can be like, told call, you, call you, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like I, I, it doesn't it doesn't really like surprise me anymore. 
Um, but man, I've made some really big mistakes, like really big, you know, um, I was young and we were on warp tour and we had this song called Jezebel that was like, just about like girls groupies that were like trying to like, you know, come in on the camp and like whatever. And, um, and, and I thought, man, what if I say like before this song, like this song is for the sluts or the whores or whatever, you know, (laughs) and like that, that, that word is going to make the crowd go crazy. And it's going to be so like, you know, like edgy and, and all this. And then like all of a sudden this like, you know, this group of, uh, like I think it was like a feminist, feminist group or whatever was at the show and, and they had like come at me on the internet. And I was like, in that moment, dude, like I was like, whoa, what did I do? Mm -hmm. I I remember. I had Joel from no. the Amity Affliction yeah, yeah. calling you up. Yeah, and did I, you guys ever have a have a conversation afterwards? No, um, no, never. Um, and I mean, things are obviously fine these days. You know, it was so sure. long ago. But when I think about saying that on stage, I get sick to my stomach. Yeah, I'll admit all day long that that was the most immature, most like cowardly way to get a response out of a crowd and it's not the the aftermath of it the effect of it is not at all worth it what what i thought was worth it or what i thought was going to come of it you know um so it's like you know there's bands that are like very outspoken offensive bands that like will never take any heat for saying anything even remotely close for that (laughs) for the second you do but yeah yeah yeah. and and i'm and i and that's not an excuse at all i mean what i said was was awful dude at that time in, in my life like i didn't mean for it to feel the way that it felt to certain people, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and I, dude, if I could take that back all well, day even, long, even though but, the, the the climate's changed too since then too, like the, the social climate, totally, has changed too. yeah, so absolutely, even bands that are more known to be more vulgar and absolutely, they're changing their tone, absolutely, too. yeah. I mean, dude, I I was like. My my saying that was like to a person that wasn't in the crowd, <laughs> you know what I mean. Or in any crowd, but then people in the crowd felt like attacked. Right. And that, dude, what a bummer. You know what I mean? Um, and so I don't know if that song had anything to do with, with, with that moment or whatever when the whole internet wanted to crucify me. You know what I mean? But, um, I was so thankful for, you know, AP did an interview and they were like, they were like, Hey, we want you to like, we want to know if you have something to say, to say about this. And I was like, I would love to clear the air. Mm-hmm. Nobody read it. You know what I mean? Because nobody, <laughs> reads nobody the reads the, the, yeah. the, the apology or whatever. Everyone just like reads the, you know, whatever. Um, but no, I mean, people that attack me on the internet or people that come at me are people that have never taken time to ask me a question right. or, or to get to know me or whatever. And that's usually not the way the internet works. People are usually like voicing their opinions before they get to know somebody or well, whatever. And also, I mean, like um, you, you, like you said, you put yourself out there. Yeah. Not only that, but you're, you have your religious views or your, your totally. views. Yeah. Then you're in a band yeah. and on top of that. So there's a couple other things. Totally. Everyone's got an opinion. Absolutely. Everyone has an opinion. Absolutely. So. Yeah, man. Yeah. No, but that, you know, that, that I haven't even, to be honest, I haven't thought about that, that song in so long. And I actually never even listened to the song because I was like, this is a joke. Uh, but, but yeah, man, no, it's, it's weird. It's, it's strange, man. It's a, such a strange thing, you know, growing up in, in the spotlight and making friends in music and then like going through something really tough and having made a mistake and definitely deserving some flack for it. Absolutely. But when your own friends, quote unquote, mm-hmm. like are just there to, 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 to grab the torch and to, to be another person that stabs you in the back. Cause it's an, it's an opportunity to gain some numbers, mm-hmm. you know? That sucks, dude. A lot of things are for clowns. Yeah, it sucks. It sucks to like, to wonder who you can trust or who's really even like cares, you know? Cause I had a very small amount of people that would come up to me and be like, dude, why'd you say that? Or did you mean that? You know, like none, none of that. It was just like, Oh, this is the person that everybody hates right now. Let's do it. You know? (laughs) And, uh, 
Well, and you're lucky that it probably didn't happen in this time for the internet. Yeah, you know, for sure. You, you, it probably for got sure. crucified way worse. Absolutely, you know? man. Yeah, no, and it sucks. It sucks growing up in the spotlight and making dumb decisions and, and, and regretting them. But I mean, that's all part of, of, of what we do, mm-hmm. you know? So, what do you think, what do you think the biggest misconception about you is if you had to pick one? That I'm religious. I think the biggest misconception about me is that I'm religious. I think that people see me like at church, like, you know, like doing this or whatever. Uh, the church that I attend in Nashville is like the most incredible, open, honest conversation that I get to attend every week. That's so wonderful. And I genuinely believe that people are all on an equal playing field. And a lot of like the rules and regulations that people think about Christianity are so false and not the character of Jesus at all. I'm so thankful for my relationship with God and because of the freedom that it gives me, not the restrictions that it puts on my life. And the guidance, absolutely. I think that what God desires for his children is to follow a path that's going to bring them joy, that's Mm -hmm. going to bring them happiness. You know what I mean? I'm thankful for my morals and things that came from Scripture, like not cheating on my wife out on the road. Because ultimately, whatever temptation I might experience in a moment is far outweighed by the richness of my relationship with my wife that I've had for 13 years. You know what I mean? And so I'm so thankful for that. But I'm, you know, like the, the old, old Testament law and even, I mean, like the misconception of of New Testament and who God is and who Jesus was at heart. Um, it is, makes me far from a religious person. You know, I believe I have a relationship with the creator of the universe and it's so rad. That's Mm. awesome to me. Um, but I'm far from, from religious. So you, you've been with your wife 13 years. Yeah. Uh, you kind of, kind of, I don't want to say like made it sound like it's pretty easy for you and her to continue being in a relationship. It's the hardest thing to say about our marriage, but it is true. Okay. I feel like we've had a fairly do easy you, time. Yeah. Do you think that, and she may join you on the road sometimes, I'm, I'm assuming too, but yeah. do you think having the ability to, to be apart for some time helps or hinders that? People, I think that that's a pretty common thing that people think about, about our marriage, you know, it's like, oh, absence makes the heart grow fonder. You know what I mean? Um, I wouldn't say that's the case at all. Um, we definitely miss each other like crazy. And there's definitely those like really powerful, sweet moments, like right when you right. come home. A- a- absolutely. Um, but man, I mean, we spend a lot of time at home together too. We don't tour nearly as hard these days. We tour a lot smarter than we do harder these days. And, um, and our time at home together is fruitful. Uh, dude, it's not that we don't argue that we don't get into like tough stuff, but like working through it, we enjoy. Mm-hmm. It's not work because because we love the sweet, the good moments so much that doing the work to get back to that kind of thing, man, it feels it feels like a luxury. You know, to be able to work on something that you, with someone that you love and respect so much is a joy. You know, cool. and uh, and so that's how we perceive it. And I guess you know we're just lucky. That's pretty interesting. Um, I want to kind of dive back into like you moving down to Dallas and yeah, the band and sure. stuff like that. Um, so. You, you've moved from Spokane to Dallas. The, um, the band's writing records and stuff like that. You guys are making music in Dallas. And then you move to Atlanta. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, does the sound change with the band with the moves? Because I, I only ask because you kind of already elaborated that you like the South as well. Yeah. As far as like demographically. Totally. But, um, musically, it's a lot different too. Like we do have a lot of Southern rock, Southern uh, metal southern twang type totally stuff. yeah and your earlier stuff as a band was more along those lines of like uh you know when the influx of metalcore southern metalcore came out yeah you guys were kind of in that ballpark yeah and now i'm just curious how the music is the location of you guys living has that changed the sound of it so to speak or is it i don't just know like man it's, it's tough to say older? because like as the years passed we were moving so it's like 
was it the environment or was it the fact that I was just getting older? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Um, living in Seattle at a time in my life when I was depressed and anxious was an awful decision. Um, I mean, there's no worse weather or like, you know, like type of city to be around when you're going through something like that. And that definitely played a role in how I was writing at that time frame. Um, but I don't know, you know, living Atlanta, Dallas, Seattle, Nashville, I feel like I can't say that I, that the, that the areas that we lived in ever really affected the music that much, you know, and it's only Kellen and I that write just mm-hmm. the two of us. Um, so yeah, and and I think that no matter where we live in the South, I'll always be a boy that grew up in the Northwest, you yeah. know, and, and and I think that that comes out of me more than anything. So we're not expecting like a full-on country album coming out. <laughs> I don't think I have it in me, man. Just no. because you know you guys are living in Tennessee and yeah, man, out. I think our our guitar player Sam will absolutely put out a country record one day, and we'll all be there to support him. Absolutely, nice. yeah, because um, he loves it and he was raised with it, you know. But none of us were, none of the other guys were, so. <laughs> Um, so I have some people wanted to, to know some things. Um, you, you brought up center earlier, so that was, center, one, yeah. that was one of the questions. Uh, someone would like to know undisclosed and uncensored stories and inspirations or motives that were, uh, for the songs like the center, no ordinary love or vices. So if you want to do all three of them, or just that's awesome, man. The center is literally was an outcry from me to God being like, I need you. Keep me close. Keep me close. Keep my head above water. I can't do this on my own. It's the chorus. Mm -hmm. You know, that was an outcry tip from me to God being like, listen, I fully understand that like, this is too much. And I need you. I need your guidance. The center, um, vices, um, not directly related to me, um, but to very close friends and family that we have seen, um, with substance abuse, substance abuse just genuinely take over their lives and turn them into different people. Um, and I think that that's a very powerful concept. I think that a lot of people struggle with substance abuse. Well, um, I think a lot of people can relate to either knowing somebody. Cause absolutely. I think everyone, and nowadays, I think everyone has like one person at least in the family or friend zone. Yeah. Either going through it or having family or friends that are going through it. I mean, you understand the severity of it. Um, so that's that song. Um, and what was the third? Oh, no ordinary love. No ordinary love. So there's a story in the Bible called, you know, about the prodigal son, someone who, you know, had a father who was, um, you know, very wealthy and gave an, gave his part of his inheritance to a child and the child ran off and spent it all and then came back. And when he came back, the father was there with open arms. Like, I forgive you. Um, it doesn't matter what you've gone and done. I don't see that part of you. I just love that you're here and wanting to be with me. Mm-hmm. And that was me and my relationship with God earlier on growing up in the church and then starting the band thing and, and kind of straying from that a bit and then coming back through my anxiety and depression and like seeking God's heart, uh, coming back and desperately just wanting to get back to who I used to be and, and God being like, you know, I, that's, that's amazing. I'm here and I've been waiting for you, cool. you know? Um, so that's, that's what that song is. Awesome. Um, were you always wanting to like to be in a band uh, like to front a band, were you always wanting to do that? And did your, you know, cause my question, like, I don't, I don't get to sit a lot, sit down with a lot of like, uh, Christian bands per se. Sure, so yeah. I, you know, I have a lot of questions that kind of pertain to that, but I'm trying not to make it all about that either. No, sure. Uh, yeah. But like, were you always thinking like, you know, I want to be in a band and I want to be, well, obviously you had like the, the battle between like your views and your, and your lyrics and stuff like that. So, was it always like a goal for you to be in a band like that or were, did something that happened and like you said you strayed a little bit so did you come back to it and you know I just it's yeah, curious so, to how that goes because it's you know it's, I was like I was saying I was singing and performing at the age of six I always knew that you know like for me the, the bands that were really influential in, in my childhood were bands like DC Talk and Audio Adrenaline and 
you know, stuff like that. So I, I was, I was going to those shows and always from the time that I could speak, I was singing and I always wanted to front a band. Mm-hmm. Always. That's, I've literally never known anything else. And so getting into high school and then like the tooth and nail solid state era kind of sweeping in and like being very influential to me, bands like Blindside and Showbread. And I was so drawn to it. And, um, and so earlier on in, 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 in my career with Memphis and, and starting bands and everything, it was very much about having success in music. I had something I wanted to say. I wanted people to listen. I wanted to play shows. I wanted to sell merch. I wanted to travel. I wanted to tour in a bus. I wanted to see the world, you know, all, and perks, yeah. all of my focus was right there, you know? And so getting to a point in our lives where we had experienced so much of that and it wasn't as fulfilling as I thought it was going to be. And then mix in with that, all the anxiety and the depression, it was definitely a season of growth for me. Okay. It was a season where I was like, man, I need to get back to the heart of why I love music. I need to get back to the heart of why I'm here, why I think that I have been given this opportunity, this platform, and I want to make sure that I'm using it for the right things, you know? And that was that was that season okay. for me. Interesting, so, yeah. yeah. Um, what is your favorite Memphis Mayfire record that you guys have done collectively? Is it the I, newer stuff or is it the older stuff? Or We have... It, it, our newest record is always going to be like our favorite record of that time because it's fresh and it's exciting. Yeah, I mean, you, know you can't I mean? get away from that. I, but I but the that. record that stands out to me the most and I think always will is Unconditional. I don't know if I'll ever go through a season as tough as I was when I wrote that record. And I think that it was so hard to make that album and it was so scary to make that album. It took a lot of courage and it took a lot of strength. And I think that I can't force a season like that to happen. So when we make our next record, I might be in a great spot and, mm-hmm. and we're writing music to write music because we're right. in a contract and we have to, <laughs> you know? Um, and that's not to say that it doesn't mean something to us, that it's not valuable to us. But, um, but you know, in that season, when I was talking to my sister, who's the therapist and I was like, I genuinely believe that when people looked up to me, if I told them that I was going through something that, that it was going to, that it was going to ruin something for them, that they're going to be like, Oh my gosh, if he's struggling, then, you know, we're all doomed because yeah, I yeah. really thought that he had it all together and man, that was so poisonous, you know? But I mean, I think a lot of people always will think that so-and-so has yeah. it all together. And that's why, you know, totally. things like you talking about your anxiety and just like hating flying or your, your religious views and stuff like that, it also totally. opens you up to people that are like, oh, okay, well, it's also okay to have these issues. And that's so products. important. It really yeah. is so important. And my sister told me, she's like, what those people need more than anything is to know that you struggle just like they do. Yeah. Cause you're in a position of like, Absolutely. Not celebrity status, but you're out there. You put yourself out right. there in the world and totally. in the industry and the music and the, and the Instagram and Twitter and all that Totally. Stuff, so. Yeah. So it was, I was fearful about it. You know, I was fearful about being honest and like really just wearing my heart on my sleeve with that record. Um, and it was so rewarding to talk to the people that were positively affected by that record and, um, and to know, like to look people in the eyes and to have gone through what they're going through in that moment and for them to say that that song helped them through it was the, maybe the most rewarding part of my whole career. Cool. And so, yeah, I think Unconditional will always probably be my favorite record. What's the, uh, what's the worst record or song that you guys have made, song that you've made that you, that you, that you have to play out, I should say? Yeah, I don't know, one dude. That you, one that the crowd may like a lot, but the band is like, oh, that one again, huh? Yeah, let, let me think, <laughs> man. I, I'll tell you, I mean, on The Hollow, there's, there's a song called The Abandoned that we've never played live, and it's literally because I can't sing it. Like, mm. in the studio, I wrote that song, and I was like, ah! 
in the chorus. It was like so high, dude. And I'm like, okay, this is sick, you know? And I was like listening to a lot of like Circus Survive and everything. So I'm thinking that I can do that. And we do it in the studio and we do a few takes and we get it. You know what I mean? But like night after night after night after night, yeah, like, I luck. would trash my voice yeah, doing good that. Luck, yeah. So, um, so we got to practice and I was like, crap, Kellen, can you sing half this chorus? You know what I mean? And so I just learned through doing that record that, that I need to write things that I can perform live, that I can pull off live, mm-hmm. you know? And so um, that would be like, I guess, the closest thing to, you know, it sucks to say like, you know, our first record, Sleepwalking, you know, it was such a valuable time in our career, like learning, like getting to know each other and, and learning who we were and me learning that like singing over Southern riffs was not for me because I'm not from the South and I didn't get it, you know? Uh, so I would say that, you know, there's a lot of failures that just made for great successes. And, um, and, but yeah, that, that, that would be the most embarrassing thing is, is straight up saying like, yeah, I wrote a song that I can't do. Like, can't sing you know yeah, I mean? So we're not going to play it. Yeah, that does suck you know? a little bit. Um, yeah. so you mentioned sleepwalking and the Southern, the Southern, uh, riffage and stuff like yeah. that. Um, and you not liking to sing over it, obviously. Uh, a lot of people have asked if any kind of those Southern elements will be coming back into the music, um, later on in your career or whatnot, but I guess that kind of... The southern elements of how Kellen writes have always lived in our music. They've always been in every riff. I mean, if you go and listen to any song on any record, you'll hear that influence. I actually did a, I did an interview with Revolver for this new record, and we have like one ballad song, and they were like, is that a country song? <laughs> and we're like, no, you know what I mean? But just Kellen's southern ro- roots, he grew up in Dallas, you know what I mean? And he grew up on Stone Temple and like bands that just had rad riffs like that, mm-hmm. and that will always exist in him as a writer. Um, and always has. It just hasn't been as out front twangy, like, you know, right, like, right, right, since, right. since none of us listen to the showdown anymore, you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like, um, but yeah, it will, it always has lived, lived in our music. Cool. Yeah. Um, what are some bands, whether you've toured them or not, that you're listening to currently that we should probably like be on the lookout for? Bands that I'm listening to that you guys haven't heard of. Dude, I'm not cool. I mean, like even that, if, so. even if you've heard of, even if we've heard of them, you know what I mean? Cause we obviously hear about them. Dan and uh, Shay, everybody. I mean, dude, the record's good. Period. The record's good. Let me look at, just look at my iTunes really quick. Or is there anything that you're jamming? What are you jamming outside of the, uh, metalcore scene? Dude, I got it. Lewis Capaldi. Okay. So he's a, he's a Scottish singer-songwriter. Last name is C-A-P-A-L-D-I. So I was actually, I browse the charts, like the Billboard Top 100, just try to find something that'll be inspiring to me every now and again, and have not, have struck out, like, a lot recently. And, um, you know, like the American charts, I was just so burnt out on it. And I was like, man, what are the British charts like right now? So I just decided to go jump over and check it out. And the number one song was this kid named Louis Capaldi. And I was like, I've never even heard that name before. And I listened to the song and it literally brings me to tears. Hmm. The first time that I listened to it and I'm like, whoa, that's pow- this is so powerful. So I look him up and he's like, he's a Scottish kid, but he's like an Instagram comedian. Like everything he does is yeah. like funny. But this song is like heart wrenching, and uh, so check that out. Yeah, we'll you know, I haven't out. I haven't dove through any of his other discography, but the song is called "Someone You Loved," and it's like I would say front to back one of the most well written songs I've heard in years. Cool. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to check it out, Alex. I know you have uh, some prior engagements to go to today. Um, we've kind uh, of. I was. Ki- you. Go ahead. We've kind of hit the limit here. I just was making sure you got everything in. I just. Wanted to, um, you guys had a top five album. I think it was four. Yeah. Uh, that's gotta be, what was that like? Does that, does that change everything for a band? You get bigger tours, bigger guarantees. Uh, 
Yeah, I think that, you know, it definitely helps. The respect of your, your, your relatives finally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they like the plaque for sure. Um, I think it definitely helped with that, man. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, with our, our new record, our first single and our first real attempt at radio ever, the song went top 20 and it lived in the top 20 for six weeks. Cool. And we did not think that that was going to happen. You know, like we didn't think, we thought it was going to take a lot of time and building to make our way into radio because we just never existed there. And, um, and having a top 20 song has really been impactful for us as well. You know, um, yeah, as much as the achievements side of things sucks because they're so few and far between and rare, uh, they do help. Yeah. What's the, um, so what's the what's the goal for Memphis May Fire moving forward? Like, do you guys want to continue doing this forever, or do you guys want to split up and do some solo stuff? Obviously, you got your solo stuff, and you said your other guitar players. Man, it's hard. It's hard to, and and I mean, you know, like I'll probably eat this statement. I mean, we, later, we know but, you're not going to break up. I'm not saying no, that yeah. or anything, but you know, it just doesn't feel like apart. it doesn't feel like we'll ever break up. I think that we could definitely get to the point where we were playing a festival. Like doing the festival circuit mm-hmm. and that's it, you yeah. know, like I, I think that that, you know, in, into our forties and stuff, like, um, if people still care about us at all, which there's a good chance they won't, um, may, maybe we could do that. Um, but I can't imagine us like collectively getting together and being like, we don't ever want to do this ever again, ever. You know what I mean? Uh, but I don't know. I don't know. It really just depends on everyone's paths. I mean, the guys might start having kids soon and, um, you know, we're in our thirties and it, and it, and it could happen. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but yeah, we're, we're kind of like, leaning towards active rock now and we definitely want it to be memphis mayfire rock like we want it to have arts flavor to it um but that's just more along the lines of what we're listening to these days and and what inspires us and the kind of touring that we want to do and the kind of bands that we want to tour with and so leaning towards that world it's like you definitely can get older and still have a lot of success in that world yeah it's so i don't know it's a little difficult as and again i'm speaking as a fan you know you want um i learned very early on that the bands i was very passionate about we're always changing their sound. Yeah. So I had to kind of adapt to that. Yeah, totally. Part. Poison Well, one of those bands. Poison Well's a great Glass band. Glass Jaw is another band that Absolutely. I followed forever. They've just drastically changed every album. Yep. But, um, it, it, it doesn't, the, the younger audience members may not really understand that, you know, you are growing as a person too. And totally. that's something that is just lost on the fan, I guess, early on. But, totally. Um, yeah, it's interesting to see bands grow over time totally i mean what people want dude is they want you to recreate a nostalgic feeling that's not the time. possible yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't do it like even if under Oath's new record sounded like define the great line people still would have talked crap on it period mm-hmm. you know what i mean because you felt a certain way about a certain song because you heard it at a certain time in your life you know like i love they're only chasing safety because i was 16 and i got my first car and my wife and i were driving around and she was so beautiful and i was so stoked and connected to the music and all that and it was like there's nothing Under Oath could ever do to recreate that feeling for mm-hmm. me. And um, what's funny is that, like, metalcore is even becoming st- kind of like a nostalgic thing. It's like, man, I loved you when I was in high school or whatever. So it's like, even though you grew out of metalcore and you listen to Post Malone now, you want me to write a record that sounds like what you listened to when you were 16? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you want me to write a record that makes you feel 16 again, even though you don't even listen to metalcore anymore. You don't even buy albums anymore. Yeah. You don't even come to our shows anymore. Why are we writing music for you? For you, yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? What are you talking about? (laughs) You know, like, we wanted to write a rock record. Yeah, we're going to write a rock record. We can't write music for our fans because we've never done that. We can't write music for them because then it's not our music. It's Mm -hmm. not authentic. So we're going to write a record for us, and if you like it, that's awesome. And we're so thankful that you like it. If you don't, that's okay. There's a million other bands out there, and there's still some bands playing metalcore. You know what I mean? Well, I also think a lot of people are just... 
you were saying like they'll have kids and they'll, you know, your band members. Totally. I think a lot of bands that maybe did that earlier on, now their kids are a little older. Totally. They're getting back in the swing. Totally. Of things, you know what I mean? And dude, I'm all for the 10 year tours and the emo nights. I'm all for it, man. Absolutely. Um, but don't for a minute think that when we sit down to write a record that we're trying to please you. It comes into your head at all. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. All right. Do you, I like do that. you have anything else, Al? Uh, one final question. How do you want to be remembered? Man, that's, that's awesome. At the ripe age of 30, you have to yeah, go ahead and yeah. discuss that. That's an awesome question. Um, man, I guess... I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, it's cool. I, I guess I <laughs> that, would just... That, that is a tough one I to would want to be remembered as, as, as someone who just always stayed the course. You know what I mean? Someone that, you know, I believe a certain thing. Um, I like a certain thing when it comes to, to music and stuff like that. I want people to feel like I was always true to me, you know? And, um, and that I inspired people, hopefully, you know? Um, I've gotten to talk to so many people all over the world that in one way or another somehow were affected by our music. And I don't know if that lives on forever or not. Um, but it's been awesome. It's been an honor. It's been a wild ride and I'm thankful for it, yeah. you know? And, uh, if, if for whatever reason, something that I wrote gave someone hope or they found purpose in it or it helped them live another day when they're thinking about committing suicide, because so many people are going through that right now, I would hope that once I'm gone, that maybe they remembered that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Man, it kind of sucks. Awesome. I, you, you briefly, you briefly in the beginning brought up your like hair care line, and oh, I, yeah. I wanted to discuss that too. But you know, now now we're sitting in like a, a minute, an hour thirty. No, it's all good, dude. Um, just because I at one point had like a three foot long beard too, so like, oh, nice. I got cool, into the whole like you know beard oils, totally, and, and, and all that stuff. So I I definitely wanted to explore that more with you. And I guess if you wanted to for the next three minutes or so like that, just you know give yourself a yeah, plug. If you, but, if you, yeah, if you care to hear about it, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm all. I mean, I my I'm personally interested in all that. Totally. Stuff too, yeah, so, yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's called on point pomade and, uh, it started out as one product. Um, I had just, I had a pompadour and kind of like a slick back haircut and I was looking for the perfect product and never found it, but stumbled across a lot of good products along the way. And, um, so I really wanted to take like my favorite five hair products and all the good aspects of each of them and make one like super pomade that was perfect for me. And ultimately, that was just for me to use it, not for, to, for me to right. sell. You know what I mean? Um, and we developed, me and my friend Jason developed this hair product with a scientist from, from, um, Oregon that I was so stoked about, um, and so passionate about that I was like, let's make it a business. Absolutely. Let's, let's offer it to the public. And who knows if anyone's going to want it or if they're going to care or if they're going to like it because this, my, it's my thing. It's right. not like a, you know, um, and it had, there was a ton of success behind it and people really loved the product. And so after that, um, that was like a classic shine, stronghold, water soluble pomade. After that, I realized there's a lot of guys that use hair product that want a product that doesn't look like they're using product. Right. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so we developed a matte pomade and, um, and that was wildly successful and, and, and by wildly successful, I mean as a startup. I yeah, don't mean like, we sold five, we're not a sold, we sold five you know, we yeah. sold five out of my house. Uh, just, just very well received. I mean, people really enjoy it, you know? And, um, and so after that, we got into the world of beard oil and I've got some friends with some very successful beard oil brands and I picked their brains and, um, I had not used it and I started growing my beard out to like develop ours so I could use ours and really figure out what we wanted ours to be like. And we just sourced some really high quality essential oils. Beard oil is actually very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, pomade's not. Pomade's complicated, but beard oil is very simple. It's, you know, whatever scent you want, high quality essential oils, whatever carrier oils you're wanting to use essentially. Um, so we got some really high quality oils and, and we, 
put the the signature on point scent that's in all of our products into that, and um, and now that's become a thing and people really yeah, like it. That's so really cool. It's, it's cool golden. to see other you know uh, bands take. Um, other avenues or other revenue streams. Totally, yeah. You know I, mean? so. I didn't. I couldn't do a clothing line. I knew that I wasn't like. I didn't have some like some stereotypical stuff. There, awesome though, you know? idea for for a clothing line, and so I didn't want to just do it to do it. And so when I found something, you know, I think that grooming products um, at the root of it, like people want to look their best. People want to feel confident. So it's like if I can create a product that makes people feel more confident, then that's awesome. And so that's what we do. And um, and and it's been awesome. It's been a crazy ride so yeah, far. Yeah, you should definitely. Um sponsor a bunch of the people in the scene because you know beers are heavily prevalent in the metal we do we absolutely do jake from abr actually uses uses the beard oil and, oh, interesting. and, and, and yeah, loves I've it i've seen him post about it yeah yeah i didn't know it was yours per se yeah okay no cool. I, I appreciate the shameless plug though yeah. like, <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I liked it. i like the fact that you know like i said it's not just about you and memphis may fire yeah beforehand so it's, it's cool to show that you do other things outside of that too totally so, that's pretty cool man uh yeah. well i appreciate your time matt thank you yeah, i appreciate on, i appreciate you guys having me on this is cool i don't I, from, from everything i've ever read i don't think you guys as fans like us very much so i was like it's, i was it's, like it's two separate things i don't there's, know if it yeah there's fans and then there's i think that's who, uh, a comment that's a, a common experience amongst so, fans i don't think the, the readers like anything really if you if you believe what they read <laughs> so uh take it all with a grain of salt but yeah, I really appreciate the no, the, dude, absolutely the conversation and the candor. It's the anonymous internet. It, it's really cool talking to you. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me, man. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or were nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.